Welcome to the ISTC monthly podcast where you can keep up to date with what's going on at the ISTC and in technical communications in the UK and globally. The ISTC is the Institute for Scientific and Technical Communicators and our members work to make scientific and technical information more accessible. I'm Amanda Marr, your host. I'm a member of the ISTC and a freelance technical author. Each month, the podcast team plan to bring you interviews with people working in technical communication across a diverse range of industries, as well as all the latest news and events from our profession. This month, I'm talking with Chris Wood, UX writer at Oxford University Press, about being a technical communicator in the education and publishing sector. Based in Oxfordshire, Chris started out as a teacher before moving to Oxford University Press, where he has gained experience in different communications roles. Welcome to the ISTC podcast, Chris. Thanks very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, one of the first things I wanted to ask, what is Oxford University Press? What do they do? Uh, we're one of the world's largest university presses, and we publish to uh, a range of educational markets. So we're probably most well known for our, the dictionary, the Oxford English Dictionary. But in fact, if you're in the UK and you went to your local primary school, you'd find that children were learning to read there using our reading schemes. And we go right the way through the English curriculum, publishing through uh, UK schools, all the way into academia and publishing research and journals. But we also have a very strong English language teaching focus. Uh, that's my division that I work in, where we support teachers and learners around the world who, who want to learn English or be assessed on their English. Oh, wow. So it's a global operation then? It's a huge global operation, yes. So uh, English language teaching, I, I forget how many countries uh, and different markets we work in. But yes, so we're, we're communicating with users all over the world who have various levels of English and want to, want to learn more. Aha. Uh -huh. And so what is your specific role at the moment? What is it that you're actually doing at OUP? I started this particular role in 2019, uh, where the role was then given the title of technical author. So I was brought into our, our team who works on our various platforms. We've got about half a dozen or so digital platforms that we work on. And my role there was to provide content for our help and support sites. So they were feeling a bit neglected and needed a bit of love and attention. But as I got into the role, my role expanded to include not just the help and support, but all the language that is on our digital platforms that a customer is seeing or interacting with. So that's why just recently the title of the role changed from being technical author to UX writer to reflect that change from uh, being just focused on help and support to being sort of more about everything that our customers, all the language that our customers see when they visit one of our digital platforms. What do you see the difference between the technical author job description and the UX writer? I think in some industries or in some places, the same two people doing the same job might have two different titles at the moment. Just this morning, I was reading a newsletter and this was one of the topics in it. There, someone was talking about how, you know, wherever you are in the industry, we've all got these different titles, but we're all sort of doing the same kind of thing. So I think for me, what, what made the difference for me was the change from being purely focused on writing I suppose what you'd call static copy, so the, the help and support content, so it was kind of fire and forget copy that went out there and, and stayed, to being involved in sort of UX copy, that's the copy which sits on our websites, which is more evolving and which is kind of changing as we understand more about what our users need and then the store about and as our sort of platforms mature, as we bring in new features and functionality, 
things are changing all the time. So it's a much more it's a much more sort of fluid way of writing than uh, creating just creating documentation or just creating support materials. So would that be so how do you find the questions that users come to your support team with and you get a broader understanding of how they're using the product and, and any issues that they have with it? That's what you mean by evolving is reacting. Yeah, a little bit. And so um, research is a really important part of that, user research and finding out where users are. But it also is about it's not just about um, being reactive and finding it and sort of trying to fix problems that we know are happening. But it's also sort of being proactive as we understand the things that we want to share and develop with our customers and what we as we get closer to them and understand more about what their needs are. Uh, we start developing our platforms and it's hard to develop a platform without any words on it. Uh, we can't, everywhere we go, whatever web service you use, there's going to be some words on it. And someone has to choose what those words are and when you should see them and where you should see them as well. So whenever we're doing any kind of development on our platforms, we're always thinking about, well, just in the same way as, you know, uh, any other aspect of the visual design is there to help people use the site and uh, find it more intuitive and get their jobs done more quickly and easily. The language is there too, doing exactly the same thing. So we're always there looking and saying, just, just as we would look at any other aspect of the visual design or any other aspect of the interactivity on the website, thinking, you know, what can we do to make this smoother? What can we do to make this more focused on our users? Uh, we're there looking at the language at the same time, thinking, okay, how can this language uh, work better for our customers? How can it be more focused? How can it show greater empathy? How can it get them to where they want to go more quickly? And so that's really where my role sits in. So I'm being that voice, or I'm trying to be that voice in our team. Just one voice. I mean, I'm, we're great to have an entire team of, of UX professionals. Were you the only technical author when you started out? Uh, as far as I can tell, I think I was OUP's first technical author, and I'm certainly their first UX writer. But it's got a, an existing, in my division, it's got a, a UX team. So as well as UX writing being an evolving role just in the industry in general, uh, it's certainly one that we're, we're learning and evolving with along at the same time. Uh, so I work on my, uh, I'm the only person in the team who, whose job title and job description is specifically focused on language. But the, you know, the entire team takes an interest in that as well. And so a lot of the times, you know, I'm working with people and they'll, they'll share a, a suggestion for a design with me and I'll look at it and go, I can't improve that. That's brilliant. You know, so yes. my role is thinking about the fact that we have such a, a wide range of users. So we could be looking at so someone who's a, a primary age child might be using this. Someone who's sort of under 10 might be using this for the first time. They might be using our platform for some homework at home with a parent who doesn't speak English at all, right the way up to someone who might be, you know, a sophisticated business learner or an academic learner of English. And we're looking at teachers and we're looking at people who might work in a school office and are adding information. My role is really in quite a way. It's quite a simple one, really. It's just to think, are we saying what we need to say in the simplest, in the clearest way possible? that anyone anywhere in the world can access, which is a quite a tall order when you're... So I would think yeah. that if you're, you know, if you're dealing with primary school children, you almost have a, a, a set of words that, that you can use at their level of understanding. But do you do that way or do you just try and keep it simple across the board or do you use slightly different language depending on your audience? The specific content that they'll access through our platforms is obviously highly tailored to them. And, you know, so I won't go down to that level of detail. What I need to make sure is that the language that they do encounter is language 
that they would be able to have a go at or at least be able to access in some way that I'm not placing an unreasonable expectation on them, which is really interesting, you know, when you get into things like you want people to accept terms and conditions or things like that. So you go, okay, how does that work if I'm asking a 13 year old who yeah, needs to accept some terms and conditions or needs to get their parents to accept some terms and conditions? Yeah. Yeah, as adults, we struggle with terms and conditions as it is. <laughs> <laughs> we try and be as simple as possible and try and keep it as short as possible. And if we can do both of those things, that's a win. And then on, on top of that, we'll try and make it friendly as well. Yes. So those are, those, are kind of my, those are kind of my priorities. My priority is to keep it, first of all, simple, second of all, short, and then third of all, friendly and, and empathetic as well, if I can. If I can do all three, then that's fantastic. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yes. So in the introduction, I mentioned that you started out as a teacher. Why did you choose to change from that? In a way, it, there was a lot of continuity in it. So I think my, my motivations for wanting to get a teacher was, was for obviously for having a, a, you know, a real interest in education and wanting to help people with that. Uh, what I found when I was teaching was that what I enjoyed doing most was, was preparing resources for my, my classes that I was working with and being dissatisfied with the resources that I was finding on, on the web or seeing them badly edited. Okay, what I want to do is make a really good looking document, <laughs> which is great, <laughs> but isn't the sole focus of teaching. So I thought, well, actually, maybe, uh, maybe this is something that I need to focus on a bit more fully. So uh, decided to make the switch from teaching to this kind of world of publishing and documentation. Uh, allow myself to have a be a bit more sort of full throttle into that and allow that to kind of evolve. Teaching is an incredibly demanding profession and I am a complete awe of those teachers who are able to, you know, work around the clock and through the year to, to do what they do. And it was just for me, it was like, well, my focus is somewhere else. And, you know, I think, I think uh, personally as well, it's the right choice. So just the two things just sort of happen to come together at the same time. Yes. Good. It's always interesting to see where people have come from. When I was about 15 and our career service at school made us take a job description sort of quiz sort of to find out what sort of careers you might be interested in. We sort of sat there and dutifully filled in this sort of multiple choice questionnaire and uh, it got sent off and the results came back to us. And at the top of my list was technical writer, which when at age 15, however many decades ago that was, I had no clue what a technical writer was. And it wasn't something I was even thinking about. Yeah. And uh, it was, I'd been in this role, but I suddenly found this thing in in my loft one day as I was sort of uh, clearing up. I went, oh, my gosh, this computer program from the 1990s was a better predictor of my career than I was. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what that's Fascinating. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Let's talk tools. What tools do you use in your work? Software tools or anything else that you find useful? Any resources? Uh, yes, lots. I do love a good tool. Um, I think one of the biggest tools which uh, I'm still learning to use is how to conduct good user research. And I think being able to conduct good user research has such a profound effect on what I produce at the end of the day. Because I think so often you can be sort of acting in your own bubble and you do your best to kind of get rid of your assumptions and put yourselves in your in your user's shoes. But until you actually sit down with a document in front of them uh, or with a screen in front of them and they give you feedback, suddenly, you know, you're just flooded with a whole new perspective and get a whole different understanding of, of what it is they're trying to do and what it is, how it is they read what you've written. 
So I don't know whether you call that a tool, but it's certainly it's certainly kind of thing at the top of the list and something which I'm always trying to um, always trying to do more of. Have you used any kind of strategies or any frameworks or methodologies in in doing that, or or is it just a case of getting time with users and the product? Yeah, so we do a, a lot of user testing in the course of just uh, building and working on our platform. So it's often a case of just sort of piggybacking on existing research that's going on anyway. So there'll be lots of different people uh, in the UX team and outside the UX team who are interested in getting customer feedback. And it's just about being part of that process and say, and uh, being able to say, you know, as part of what we're doing, can we can we ask them what they think about this or can we look about that? Sometimes, which I've done before back in the days when we were in the office, I would uh, do something called closed testing, which is where uh, you can block out every five, six words, something like that. And you just ask someone to fill in what they think the gaps are just to give you a sense of, you know, if it's predictable and if your text is in some way predictable, then you think then it gives you a kind of steer that you're on the right on the right lines. Uh, ah. working in. Uh, yeah, I might do a closed test, might do um, sort of an A-B test with some text. Which you might have heard of in sort of the computer world where you might be served. Two different people might be served two different types of screens. So you both think you're logging onto Facebook, but Facebook will serve one user one screen and they'll serve another user another screen. And they'll see how people use them differently and how they work with them differently. And so you can take that concept and apply it to documentation as well. So you can create two versions of a document if you're not sure which one is working or what which a particular paragraph is working or something like that. And you would present them to two people and just let them let them have at it and uh, see where they go with it. But I would really recommend uh, a couple of about a month or so ago, I think the plain language department of the U.S. government, I think that's the right name, did a really great webinar as part of their, I think it's their part of their kind of yearly get together where they discuss all things plain language. Uh, and they did a whole session on testing documentation. It's fascinating how for anyone who wants to be, who wants to test documentation or has documentation that they want to test with people, it, it went some really good practical steps about uh, of how you can do that. So always Ooh. learning. Always yes, learning. exactly. Always learning. Indeed. Is there any kind of software tools that you use as well? What all software do you use to produce your help? Yeah, most of the time, some of the help is produced uh, using legacy software, so software which has just kind of always existed, and I've just taken over that. Sometimes designers will send me their designs uh, in sort of wireframes and very sort of simplified versions of, of screens, and I'll either edit those directly or take screenshots of them and edit them or, or create PDF versions of that. So it's whatever. I, I'm, I'm not particularly wedded to a particular tool when it comes to creating help or any other kind of text. It's whatever seems to be most useful at the time. I'm really interested in Markdown at the moment. I don't know whether that's something you or your listeners will be familiar with. So it's a yeah. simplified language structure, um, which you can then output to lots of different formats as well. But I haven't really started getting into that at the moment. So really, it's just, yeah, whatever most useful at the time for the particular job. The things on my bookmarks toolbar are probably what I rely on more. So um, my my bookmarks toolbar on my on my browser is just filled left to right with these sort of things which I kind of click on daily. And I would say the ones I most frequently go to are ones which tell me how readable the text is. So Hemingway Editor, I don't know whether people have come across Hemingway Editor. which is uh, obviously if you're familiar with Ernest Hemingway's writing, it's kind of very terse, simplified writing. So it's this fantastic editor, uh, which just lets you type onto the screen. And it tells you, you know, sort of roughly the reading age. And if you've got any 
extraneous words in there or if any of your sentences are very hard to read, things like that. It can be a great little first stop for flashing yeah. out thoughts and strumming them down. I'd be amiss if I didn't say our Oxford Advanced Learners Dictionary, so which tells me whether a, uh, a word, what kind of level, language level the word is. So yeah. in the world of English language teaching, the English language vocabulary and a lot of other skills can be broken down into these uh, levels, sort of A1, A2, B1, B2, C1, C2. And I try and make sure that my language is in the A1, A2 level. So if I'm writing something and it's not in that level, then that usually forces me to go back and, and have another go. Yeah, so is that A1 level mean that it's, uh, it's most simple, simple, fairly simple, clear, everybody should understand it, not using yeah. words that are yeah. inaccessible, yeah. Keeping <laughs> it accessible, yeah. Yeah, so it's that kind of level. So it's, um, so those, those are the ones I, I'm often, I'll often go back to it. And I've got to be careful, isn't it? You can, you can end up sort of going down a bit of a full sally where you make things overly simple, where you start, you can end up with these kind of very, very ridiculous sentences and someone needs to tap me on the shoulder and say it's okay. You know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like, oh, it's stripping words out. Uh, <laughs> when I transferred from computer career to writing career, I did a tech author training course. Mm. And uh, one of his key things was one idea per sentence. Don't try and cram all the information into one sentence and think that's the clever thing to do because it's not. Yeah. You're not actually helping the reader. And the real challenge with that, I found, is doing that whilst also sounding human and friendly. Yes. Because natural speech is isn't usually one thing at a time. It's you know, it's it's full of different things, it's full of tangents and ver- and variations. So being able to be clear and human at the same time is yeah, it's probably I'd say the big challenge. Yes, yeah, definitely. When you're doing instructions, I, I don't know what other writers do, but I do have a tendency often to have a, a little bit of a text where I kind of describe what we're doing in a more chatty human yeah. way and then the instructions are very specific and yeah, um, and so you can have a human level but then you have the very clear specific follow this and you won't go wrong route uh, yeah. to, to try and balance out otherwise if you're just given instructions you it does become very machine like yes often when i'm writing for a website rather than uh, help copy it, it's interesting you can find yourself sort of starting to have this conversation with someone with a kind of an imagined user if you like so and it, it then sort of brings you into the territory of what we call i think there's a, a developing area of design called conversational design so it's the oh. people who write the words which your smart assistant speaks to you in yes so it's great to think that somewhere in the world someone is sitting down and t- telling uh, alexa or google what what to say to when uh, when you ask them those questions it's a really interesting way of thinking about copy as conversation. So it's yes. like, okay, what would, be, what would be a useful question to ask here that also sounds natural to the user? So, yeah, fascinating. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a, that's a very good way of thinking about it, actually. Being that kind of helpful but knowledgeable friend. Yeah. Another tool that I've been interested in starting to use, it, I found out that a lot of recruitment websites now or websites we're associated with recruitment um, have these tools on them which will tell you if your language is gendered so if you're using language which is particularly yeah orientated to either be particularly masculine or particularly feminine or might respond more to male oh, that's useful no i have absolutely no idea about a lot of what's going on behind the scenes of these things it's not something you particularly rely on um but it is just kind of interesting every now and again just to dip into it and think okay just 
Am I kind of, yeah, skewing things one way or another? Yeah. So what was the tool that you found? There's more than one of them. A lot of the big big recruitment sites or the big recruitment brands, I think, will have them. So it's one of those things you should be able to Google. It's interesting, actually, because it does sort of bring us onto this whole area of accessibility as well, which is, uh, which we're really, which in my role as well is, is accessibility is really focused on readability, uh, yeah. making sure you can read it. But it also is thinking about, thinking about people with vision impairments or other, other different types of users who have different accessibility needs. And being able to being able to think about that and work those in as well, it's just it's just such a good way of or, or taking you out of your assumptions. So is that where you would make your site uh, make sure that any visual images have a description, an audio description that could be yeah, exactly. read out? Yes, it's funny. Um, my understanding of accessibility is something which is is kind of very new, and I'm still learning a lot about thinking about things like just uh, understanding the way a screen reader reads a screen so being able to structure your headings properly making sure like you were saying things like images are identifiable and having and having good images around that so can you give us a bit more information about what you're actually working on at the moment i think i've got three or four different things that i would say am i in my role at the moment one is to be working on the text which goes on our digital platforms. So that's all about putting the right words in the right place for the right people uh, and making it at the right time as well. So that's one aspect. Uh, another aspect is creating and maintaining our help and support sites. So that's making sure they're always up to date and always trying to uh, improve them and work on them as well. So we're keeping the, not just keeping the content up to date as our as our platforms evolve, but making sure that our, our language is always up to date as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I would say I've got some kind of uh, sort of slightly wider roles, which is thinking about our style, our kind of house style, how we approach digital writing, what it is that makes our approach unique and what it is that we need to do to make sure that we're always maintaining the right standards when it comes to our copy. And then uh, the role naturally overlaps with different other with people kind of outside my immediate functions. So there's obviously there's overlaps with uh, marketing, with editorial. So obviously both of them are involved in putting language directly in front of customers. So there's a lot of overlap there. You know, we're thinking like when emails go out or when campaigns start and things like yes. that. So there's a, there's a lot of collaboration uh, to be done as well, which is great. How do you make sure that your online content is engaging and and interesting and relevant? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's a really good question. And I think in a way that's the central question of, of what the job is and what the role is. How do we do that? How do we, how do we present content which isn't there for itself? We know that the, we know that the language and the content that we put up on our platforms isn't the user's end goal. They want to get to their educational materials. They want to, they want to do particular tasks. They want to manage their schools and organizations. Uh, they want to understand their uh, students' progress. Uh, so we've got to make sure that our designs and our text is going to get them there in the smoothest and simplest way possible. In a way, it's quite different to the work that the, the editorial text is doing or the marketing text is doing. It's got a very specific function. It's designed to be invisible almost in a way. So yes, if, yeah. if you can skip past the text in some way, that's perfect. 
I certainly find that when I'm using websites, you know, I will, you know, see a message come up and I know that I'll just click OK or I'll just click cancel without reading the four messages. And when I do, I feel slightly heartbroken because I know some poor copywriter somewhere probably spent <laughs> hours agonizing over what the right, uh, what the right terms were to go in that, uh, to go in that small thing. And there I am just clicking past it. It is the fact that they've designed a bit of text. So it looks very similar. That's the job that they've done. So you kind of go, oh, yeah. yeah. And you can click, 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 and <laughs> you can find the path. It's been signposted for you. Exactly. So, yeah, I would say, like, um, uh, I couldn't speak for my colleagues in marketing or editorial, but my my feeling is that their their job is to kind of draw the reader's attention to the words themselves so they can hone in on particular benefits or, you know, particular educational content, whereas the language that we're interested in is more like a vehicle just to get people where they want to go. And like you say, it needs to be, that's that great phrase, isn't it? 99% invisible. All good design is 99% invisible. Yes, yeah, exactly. You've done that job like no one will notice. Yeah. yeah, it's strange, isn't it? I was studying a bit of design and there was this example of design doors that were beautiful and it was great if you followed the path. But as soon as you didn't follow the path, if you suddenly turned around and went, oh, I need to go back out again because I've not locked the car or something, you had no idea how to get out the door because there was right. no hinges to tell you where it, the edges were. There was nothing to tell you how to get out. And um, and people would get stuck and not push the door at the right point. Yeah. <laughs> so there was yeah. a point where beautiful design and functionality overlaps, and we want that sweet spot, don't we? This is where it's really good for me to be part of a team because oftentimes I'll be presenting feedback on something. So someone will have sent me a design and I'll, I'll say, oh, you know, I think we can, I think we should change this sentence here or get rid of this sentence here. And the designer will say, well, actually, that sentence is there because someone could be coming from this completely different direction and won't have that context at all. And you'll sit there and go, ah, oh, right, yeah, okay. So yeah, having people who can kind of see the bigger context is yeah. uh, a real benefit. So there was the question about standards, and do, is, are there any standards for within publishing for education? Yeah, no, it's a really interesting question. I, th I suppose the short answer is no, but I think increasingly that's going to change, and not really directly uh, as a direct set of standards, but I think accessibility does have its own standards. According. It's a bit like sort of credit ratings. You can be given these accessibility ratings. Uh, and certainly in the in the US, those are becoming more important to educational institutions who are buying from publishers. They may have a requirement that materials that they buy or the services they use meet certain accessibility standards. And obviously that's that's a lot more than just readability. That's a lot more than just copy. It's you know it's a whole it's a vast collection of things which fit into that. But I think as our customers become more and more concerned with accessibility that becomes a higher and higher priority for them i think that is going to require us to be very rigorous about applying those kind of standards to our writing as well so what at the moment is seen as sort of best practice i think over time will become more of a requirement more of a standard ah well, that's quite fascinating do you feel the need to be a member of any organization or do you find your information through communities or forums yeah, um, a lot of my colleagues who who went freelance, uh, certainly they were members of STEP, the Society for Editors and Freelancers, I think. I think at the moment, while I'm still in a large organisation, no, because there's so many good communities out there, but I can definitely see the value for it uh, if I was in different circumstances. 
uh, yeah, the conferences, the ISTC conferences sound like really good where you can um, you can geek out with fellow with yes. fellow writers. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Boring anyone getting into nitty gritty details about um, font sizes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, and um, yeah, sometimes there's things that you'd want to go into, but you don't actually you don't know a great deal about it. And it'd be lovely yeah. just to have, you know chat to somebody who does it. And I like like doing a podcast, like doing yeah. videos. But you've done videos. Yeah, I was very lucky when I first joined. My uh, manager was very keen to to start kind of creating more uh, visual content. So yeah, we got set up and started uh, working with creating videos, which has been a fantastic learning curve. I'm still learning, but it's it's great. I started off creating relatively long videos, and by long I would mean sort of one to three minutes. So trying to explain a concept or something or an entire journey. Yeah. Now I'm moving more towards just kind of animated GIFs within help topics, uh, just to explain just really short, a few short steps in a, in a topic, or just trying to capture a concept in you know, 30 seconds or less. Yeah. Uh, I feel like that's probably a better use of my time because great as videos are, they do require a lot of time and a lot of planning. Uh, it yeah. just looks, it just looks so deceptively simple just to put together something you know less than three minutes long which covers all the bases but again it's one of those things until you try and do it you don't realize how much how much planning and uh how much is involved uh, yeah yeah involved. what have you used for the animation have you got a team that can create some um animation or have you had to do it yourself piece of help that i've just produced was trying to explain a concept about how people created an organization, how they created their uh, sort of a virtual version of their school on one of our platforms. Uh, and I think I just needed to communicate using four essential icons and an up arrow. You have to get into kind of different mindset, which is really interesting. You, know, you can spend a lot of your time being very language focused, very kind of left brain. And then yeah. suddenly you think it's it's very helpful to be explained this in a visual way. Um, so being able to get, kind of switch into that more visual mode. Yeah. It's an aspect of the role that I don't think I've really thought about. I don't think I really considered as much, but is 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 for me it's just as valuable. You know, I I love spending time thinking about how the visual aspect of a document's design or the visual aspect of a an article's design to, to, yeah. to help help people get through it and yeah. enjoy it. Yeah, a lot of my <laughs> colleagues they feel like if, if a user is using their the help, then they've done something wrong in the interface because the interface should be so so good. And uh, I obviously kind of agree with them with that, but equally know that well, if someone has ended up in in help, then at least we can do the job to get them out of there as quickly as possible and on their way again. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Right. I think we'll end it there. Thank you so much for joining us today, Chris. That was really fascinating to find out what goes on at OUP and your changing roles within it. Thanks very much. Absolute pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. If you want to get in touch with Chris, you can find him on LinkedIn. Just search for Chris Wood. Yes, I'd be happy to be contacted uh, by anyone who's, uh, who's interested or if I can help with anything. Brilliant. Thanks very much. The U.S. government webinar on plain language Chris mentioned in his talk can be found at digital.gov. Click events and search for the webinar published on the 14th of April called how testing your documents can improve plain language compliance. Now for some things to look forward to next month. The summer issue of the Communicator Journal should have popped through your letterbox in the last week, 
with a focus on emerging trends, including a great article by Alexandra Gifuni on a subject Chris has touched on today, gender-inclusive writing. Techcom Europe have their monthly webinar on the 26th of July, with Tom Johnson discussing project overviews versus getting started tutorials, striking a balance between read-first and try-first user behaviours. For more information, go to technical-communication.org and search for webinars. And of course, TC UK Online is hosting its monthly lunchtime webinars, with Chris Hester talking about governance, what a governance framework is, and how to start defining one for your team. That's on Tuesday the 6th of July at 1pm. The full list of webinars for 2021 is now on the TC UK website. Go to technicalcommunicationuk.com and click TC UK Online. That's it for this month. We'll be back at the end of July with another enlightening chat with a technical communicator. Remember the deadline for the UK Technical Communications Awards is fast approaching and you need to get your applications in by the 31st of July. For more information, go to the website uktcawards.com. If you have a question about the podcast, email me at istc at istc.org.uk. A new episode of this podcast is released on the last Friday of every month. I want to thank Chris Wood for being my interview today and thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please rate, review, subscribe and share. You can find out more about the Institute for Scientific and Technical Communicators at istc.org.uk or just search ISTC on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. Don't forget to tune in next month. Goodbye.